to Crashing the War Party, where we go to places we weren't invited in order to expose the smelly, smoke-filled rooms and hermetically sealed ideological bubbles that have ultimately led to our foreign policy failure, after failure and more failure, and a sense of betrayal by regular Americans. Today, we talked to author Andrew Coburn about his saucy new slam on the military-industrial complex, The Spoils of War, power, profit, and the American war machine. But first, we want to talk about temper tantrums. That is what critics are calling Senator Ted Cruz's blocking of Biden's national security nominees until he sees the administration put the kibosh on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. The pipeline would double the capacity of the existing undersea route from Russia's gas fields to Europe, the original Nord Stream, which opened in 2011 and can handle 55 billion cubic meters per year. Russia's Gazprom PJSC owns the project operator with Royal Dutch Shell and other foreign investors contributing half to the $9.0 billion billion euro cost. The main point of contention here is that up until now, the gas was flowing to Europe through pipelines in Slovakia, Ukraine, and Poland. So they lose business. Plus, as the Trump administration had asserted during his term and criticism in Europe contends, it would make these Western European countries too dependent on Russia. But it is pretty much ready to go despite the threats of sanctions by the United States and Germany. Dan, what is Ted Cruz trying to accomplish here? Is this any ultimately any of our business? Uh, well, I, I'm not sure that he's actually hoping to accomplish anything concrete in terms of policy change. The, the, the pipeline itself is already completed. I believe I saw an announcement this week that they're starting to fill it with gas already. It will soon be operational. U.S. sanctions are not going to stop that at this point. Uh, all, all that U.S. sanctions would do would be to antagonize the Germans uh, after everything has already been finished. And so there, there's really no advantage for the U.S. in doing that. Uh, you're not actually stopping the project. You're not doing anything to counter Russian influence. Uh, all you're doing is giving the Germans one more reason to ignore you uh, on other issues, because for them, this is the, the logical choice. This is the more uh, economically efficient choice. Uh, the, this is a new mo- modern pipeline. This is state-of-the-art pipeline. So it's, it's one that's going to uh, make it cheaper for them long-term to, to bring in these energy supplies. Uh, and it, you know, it's something we should bear in mind. Uh, why is it that the Germans are using natural gas uh, as much as they are? Because they turned away from nuclear power several years ago uh, after the Fukushima disaster, uh, and they've been phasing out uh, their nuclear power generation. Uh, so if you, if you want to, to solve the problem, so to speak, of, of dependence on Russian gas, you would have to convince them to backtrack on that, and that's not going to happen. Um, in terms of, of what Cruz is really doing, I think he's, he's simply trying to cause Biden as many problems as he can and to be seen doing it uh, so that he can pander to his base. Uh, and so this is all about building himself up as a, a future presidential contender and as a, a thorn in Biden's side. Uh, and the, the problem with all of this is that it comes at a real cost to the effectiveness uh, and, and seriousness of U.S. diplomacy, because he's holding up uh, not just one or two nominees, as is sometimes the custom, he has put a blanket hold on every 
major nominee from the State Department. Uh, and, and he's making, as a condition of lifting this hold, imposing sanctions that, as we've just discussed, won't make any difference in the real world. So it, not only is it a temper tantrum, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly stupid tenter, temper tantrum because it can't actually get him anything uh, tangible. It, it's just a way for him to uh, exercise uh, his power or, or show off his power and, and really abuse it. And, and most of his colleagues are actually quite sick of this. They're, they're very fed up with what he's been doing because on account of this hold, it forces them to use up precious floor time to work through each nomination when they ought to just be able to agree to unanimous consent. And so uh, as a result of that, everything else on the legislative docket gets pushed back because you have to take care of all of these nominations one by one uh, when it should be a much more streamlined process. Um, and so he's, he's wasting our time, he's wasting our money, uh, and he's actually undermining U.S. foreign policy worldwide uh, so that he can make his little point. Uh, yeah. and, and it is a very, and it's, and it's a bad point because in the end, what we're talking about is Germany and Russia engaging in legitimate commerce. Yeah. <laughs> if, the, if, the, if this is now something that we should be throwing sanctions on, uh, then, then we've really lost the plot. We, we've become so addicted to sanctions that we, we can't determine when it's appropriate to use them and when it isn't. We just sanction everything. Right. And so, I, you know, I think if we want to get out of that habit, what Ted Cruz is doing has to be defeated and he has to be really shamed. If, if he's capable of shame, he has to be shamed into giving up. Yeah. I mean, I can't even wrap my, my brain around this. I mean, for all the time that we talked about Trump being weak on Russia, he's the one that put the sanctions on Nord Stream 2, if I'm correct. Yes. Uh, then Biden comes in and they were expiring or he just lifted them outright. But well, no, he, he, so what happened is he, he had a choice or he, he was being told by Congress he had to impose sanctions on Nord Stream AG, the German company uh, that was running it on their end, that he had to sanction them and the individuals involved in that. Um, and that, that, that was the issue. So he, the, the sanctions had not yet, those sanctions had not yet been put in place. Sanctions okay. on the Russian side had been. Okay. Uh, it, was, it was a question of, are we going to sanction our allies? Uh, and, and Biden, I think, rightly said, no, we're not no. going... We're not going to pick a fight with the Germans to satisfy the Ukrainians uh, because, let's face it, Germany is more important to us than Ukraine. And, and that's, that's the basic trade-off that he chose to make. And, you know, and, of course, the Ukrainians were not happy with it, and I, I understand that, but, but that's, that's not Biden's problem. No, it's uh, not. And I, and I remember they, there was some feeble attempt by... Uh, the the Biden uh, administration. I don't I don't remember now if it was uh, Anthony Blinken or not making some comment. You know, in one of his first initial meetings with the European leaders, saying something like, "We really don't like that pipeline." You know, um, but it it came, it fell flat because it's like on the one hand you can't say we want to you know uh, bring bring back our alliances and our friendships and you know coalitions and all that, and then on the other side of your mouth say, but we really don't like this pipeline deal. We don't we don't like this commerce that you're pursuing with another country. It just doesn't make any sense. Either you 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 don't tell people what to do, or you muscle around and throw elbows and. I, I agree with you, you know, the Biden administration decided to cut its losses. And I remember it still 
and you know, it still asserted itself, you know, during uh, I think it was a it was a meeting between Biden and Merkel a few months ago, in which he pushed it a little bit and he pushed for sanctions if the Russians didn't comply with their end or they started acting belligerently. And Merkel said, yes, we will crack down with sanctions if the Russians don't behave. And that seemed to be the sweet spot between the two leaders so they could both walk away and, and look like, hey, I didn't cave to the other side. I'm, I'm pretty cool with that. I mean, I don't like the fact that we're telling them what to do at all. Um, but for Ted Cruz to come in and start holding up our, you know, our business, you know, of the government for because of uh, a temper tantrum over a pipeline that has nothing to do with us. It just it's outrageous. I do agree. I believe it's grandstanding for the cameras, for sound bites, for elections. But, you know, I don't know how much the American people care I mean, if he can turn this around to be, you know, hey, I'm tough on Russia, you know, good luck. But I mean, when it comes down to it, this is about a pipeline. This isn't about them amassing troops on the border or uh, say, or, or, or saving Crimea or any of those other military related issues that we're always raising alarms for. Right. And, and yeah, and as, as we were saying, it's not going to make any practical difference uh, in Europe, it's, it is right. going to hamstring our diplomacy in many other parts of the world. And you know, in, in fairness, the, the Biden administration has also been falling down on the job and not nominating enough people to many of these posts. But even those that he has nominated can't make any progress because of this blockade. And uh, we should add added a dishonorable mention uh, to Josh Hawley as well, uh, because he has joined Cruz uh, in this kind of blanket hold tactic, uh, because he wants to... Uh, protest Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan. And now he's demanding that Austin and Blinken resign uh, on account of uh, withdrawal. So uh, Cruz set the example and Hawley uh, is, is imitating it. Uh, and, and both of these uh, are, are very destructive. In, in Hawley's case, he's putting a blanket hold not only on State Department nominees, but also Defense Department. Hmm. And so the, the administration cannot function at full capacity when you have these uh, demagogues throwing these fits. And you know, if, if it were a legitimate policy difference, you could understand placing a hold on one or two, which is how it's always been done. And then you hash out with the White House some kind of compromise. But what we're seeing here is just full on hostage taking and it's, it's really uh, harmful to the country. Yeah. No, I agree. What, what bothers me the most, and but it's so predictable, is that whenever the party out of power, you know, once they, you know, once they're out of power, suddenly they start behaving the exact same way they had accused their cohorts on the other side of the aisle. So for four years, we had Republicans, you know, whining and, and, and complaining, rightly so, that the Democrats are being obstructionist. And then you see them do the, the exact same thing with, the, with these nominations. I've heard Republicans calling for Biden's impeachment over the Afghan withdrawal. So, I mean, it just lays bare how superficial and hypocritical 
the political system here in Washington is, but it, it, it's unfortunate because as you point out, it actually is, is holding our, our foreign policy uh, hostage. And for what? For election sound bites for the midterms? And another thing, and I, you know, I, I would love to maybe do some offline research here, but I'm wondering why does Ted Cruz have such an interest in representing Ukraine's energy uh, needs and um, the, the, their their politics over there? Is he is he getting um, contra- campaign contributions from the energy in, in energy interests that? They're somehow losing out because of this deal. I mean, I'm sorry to sound so cynical, but after being in Washington for 20 years, it's it, nothing is what it seems on the surface. And so if he's going out there saying this is all about the integrity, you know, of our foreign policy and protecting our allies from, you know, intrusive uh, Russian gas interests, um, I'm thinking there's probably something going on under the, the uh, under the surface that we're not seeing. I, well, it could be. I I don't have any uh, information about that. But I what I can what I will say is that I think Cruz uh, love loves to demagogue uh, whenever he can, and and he sees this as something that will play uh, to Republican voters or at least hawkish Republican voters. And it's something that will let him set himself apart, uh, and so that he can uh, become their standard bearer. And so, I, you know, I think usually the the explanation for Cruz is self promotion. Yeah. Uh, that's that tends to be what he likes to do. That's what he's about. And so, I think that that's probably the simplest explanation for what we're seeing. author and journalist Andrew Coburn. He has been writing for decades on how special interests in the military-industrial complex influence foreign policy and national security in Washington. And his latest book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine, is a tour de force in that regard, with Amazon describing it thusly, quote, based on years of wide-ranging research, Coburn lays bare the ugly reality of the largest military machine in history, squalid and at a time terrifyingly dangerous. Andrew comes from a long line of accomplished journalists and writers and has spent his career researching and writing about the inside mechanics of institutions, whether it be the Soviet Union in the 1980s or the military industrial complex today. His books during the global war on terror include Saddam Hussein, an American obsession with his brother, Patrick Coburn, Rumsfeld, his rise, fall and catastrophic legacy and kill chain, the rise of the high tech assassins. He is also the DC editor of Harper's magazine and has written often for the London review of books and the nation, as well as other publications. Welcome, Andrew. I'm a big fan of your research and your writing, and I'm so thrilled to have you on Crashing the War Party. Well, thank you, Kelly. I'm so pleased to be here. Uh, so everyone is talking about what went wrong in Afghanistan. Uh, that seems to be the, the topic du jour. Uh, as, as you and I and Daniel know, uh, for years, what was eating the war from inside out, um, it seems that other people are finally uh, coming to the party. 
uh, and trying to decipher, you know, what was the rot from within. Um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your book, um, but can you share with us some of the most salient conclusions of the book and maybe how they directly speak to the failures of the last 20 years in Afghanistan? Sure. I mean, the I guess the thread of my book, I mean, the most important point I'm trying to get across is that, um, you know, that, that they, you have to consider what the object of the exercise is. I mean, we're all told, and the public is under the illusion, that it's all about defense, all about mounting an effective defense against uh, enemies, real or, as I would argue, imagined. Um, but <clears throat> the... The reality is that the object of the exercise is not defense. The object of the exercise is to is power and profit. Uh, I mean, internal bureaucratic power, uh, as evidenced by the fight, perennial fight between the services for budget share and the overall drive to make money or to, to get money. Um, and the Afghan war um, really is the provided perfect illustration of that because I mean, whereas people are calling it a great failure and what went wrong and everything, I would say that things went rather right for the interested parties. I mean, there was an, you know, we hear the figure of uh, $2 trillion, which in direct expenditure, let's say, let's settle for a trillion. That's a trillion dollars <laughs> take home. And I would call that for any enterprise a tremendous success. So um, I think we should, uh, we shouldn't applaud them, but we should perhaps admire the tenacity and and verb with which the uh, relevant parties, the military and their allies, high command and their allies in industry have uh, managed to cart away so much money. You know, so, I mean, what you're describing is something that's been going on for decades throughout the, the Cold War. What do you think was different about this war that allowed all those interests to gobble up money, extend and, and sustain the war for their profit and their benefit uh, for so long? Because it, that does seem unusual, at least in modern history, for a 20-year war to go on that long, um, it, you know, in comparison uh, with, you know, the rest of the Cold War uh, conflicts. Sure. I mean, it's a good question. I think part of the reason was it was kept, you know, it was always a little bit below the below the radar, you know, people, I mean, <clears throat> because there were actually not many actual troops involved for most of the time, um, and because, you know, we all hated the Taliban and it was all, you know, somehow it was all traced back to 9-11 and, you know, the, <clears throat> and it was very sort of badly covered or that sort of, they kept, you know, sputtered away and there wasn't, even by comparison with Iraq, where the casualties were much higher and the engagement was much bigger, um, it's slightly, you know, it's just enough in the background. So, you know, we had John Sobko, the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction. He put out his quarterly reports, which were, you know, bulging with, um, you know, horror stories in full color, you know, the $43 million gas station that couldn't be used and the $500 million on transport planes that couldn't fly, so forth. But no, you know, it's, it never sort of made its way to a big scandal. And, the pre, you know, every time a president thought of withdrawing, the military would sort of, you know, jam him into 
into upping it, um, as they did famously with Obama. You know, occasionally you had people like Matthew Ho, a great hero, who resigned from the Foreign Service, very eloquently setting out his reasons why this war was futile, which was, you know, has been totally vindicated by subsequent events. But um, in the end, no one, no one cared, really. No one cared that so much money was being wasted, so much money. No one cared that so much money was being stolen. Um, it's just general indifference, I'm afraid to say. You know, what, what you're talking about here in terms of the machinery of the military-industrial complex is such, it, 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 it calls to mind this really vast ecosystem of government interests, politicians, defense industry interests. And I often, when I'm trying to describe this ecosystem for, for regular audiences, so to speak, people who don't work in the thick of it every day, it's really hard to get your arms around the vastness of it and break it down in, in simple terms that people understand, like, how does this work? Is that what you hope to do with the book to like really just uncover this? And if so, uh, for, for a regular audience, if so, how do you organize it? How did you find a way to convey um, this, this, this vastness to, to your- Well, I take- on the vastness, I guess, I mean, I came up with the idea of the, um, really, you have to think of it not as a machine and not as a sort of an, an institution. Think of it more as an organic being, like a, I think of a, a giant or single cell creature. Um, I originally want to say amoeba, but an editor talked me into saying virus. Um, you know, that it, that it exists really to, uh, <clears throat> to, secure and expand its food supply. Um, you know, it's a, it, might sound, it might sound fanciful, but I, for example, whenever the, you know, it's been discovered that, um, I mean, Chuck Spinney, the great former Pentagon analyst, he, he discovered that the, if, you looked, if you looked at defense budgets going back to 1954, there's been a steady overall rate of increase of 5% a year. I mean, something goes up and down. It's not every year, but overall, if you draw the curve, it's 5%. And whenever the, the rate dips significantly, the trend heads below 5%, the system reacts, and we have a new threat. It happened with, um, you know, the withdrawal from Vietnam. Uh, you know, you'd think a peace dividend. Don't have half a million men overseas. Uh, no, they discovered that suddenly discovered that the Soviet Union was much stronger than previously supposed, and we needed to spend more money. And the budget recovered. Budget growth. The same thing happened after the uh, fall of the Soviet Union. Um, but you know, peace dividend. We didn't need, and they did start cutting. But then it was, you know, we expanded NATO, and therefore tensions um, automatically resumed with Russia. Uh, China was started to show promise as a peer competitor and the budget recovered again. So I, that's one way I approach it. I agree, it's very hard to, um, there's other ways you can, um, you know, you can point out that it's our only source of manufacturing jobs really left in the country, pretty much. Um, that, you know, something, some amazing boondoggle like the F-35 is manufactured. I think it's 48, every, maybe 46, 40 states, I think, they've got plants, so that's automatically, no, 45 states, 
that's automatically 90 senators. You know, it's how much it pervades. I mean, one example I give, I, I give in the book, I the book is the, this, you know, part of the uh, thing launched by Obama to uh, expand our nuclear, you know, really this vast expansion of our nuclear weapons, strategic nuclear weapons force. And part of that is to expand the production of plutonium pits at Los, at Los Alamos, uh, you know, the heart of any of our nuclear weapons. Um, as it so happens, we have a vast reserve. There's been overproduction of plutonium pits for years and years. I think yeah. they have 80 in reserve. Um, and yet you had Tom Udall, I mean, he's gone now, but Tom Udall, probably the most liberal senator, one of the most liberal senators in the Congress, absolutely spotless record on pretty much every piece of, you know, liberal cause that liberals might cherish. He's fighting tooth and nail to expand pit production of Los Alamos because, you know, it's a big employer and, you know, he'd be fried, he would have been fried at the polls, allegedly, if he'd uh, done anything else. It's just, you know, that it, it, this this creature has its <laughs> to keep up the sort of uh, <clears throat> the biological simile has its tentacles uh, uh, tentacles everywhere. It's it's hard. I mean, it's, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Sorry, say again. No, I was just going to say it is hard. I mean, it's a great question you've asked because it's very hard to try and convey to people. I mean, you can talk about the scandals. You know, the um, back in the. Uh, 80s, we had the scandal of, uh, you know, the $600 toilet seat and the $400 hammer. Uh, and that made a fuss at the time because people were a little more sensitive in those days than they've become desensitized now. Um, in recent years, it's been discovered that the toilet seat cover on the transport plane, the airport's transport plane, was now costing $11,000 just for a plastic sheet. That's incredible. <laughs> Uh, and no one cared, you know, made a few blogs. Um, and then the Air Force was, I mean, some, I think, a con, I think, Brocana or someone raised it with the Air Force. So they said, oh, yeah, well, okay, now, yeah, we don't, oh, yeah, the Air Force undersecretary said, well, it was necessary to, uh, to pay that price to maintain the uh, manufacturer's profit. <laughs> 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 that was the actual official excuse. Uh. Um, but then, um, so then they were shamed into saying, well, okay, maybe $11,000 is a bit much for a sheet of plastic. Um, so we're now going to do it through 3D printing, and it will cost only $300. $300 for a sheet of plastic. No, no, no one said anything, and I guess that's what we're paying today. Um, th thanks again for coming on the show, Andrew. I, I appreciate it. Um, sorry for interrupting you there. Um, uh, speaking of the, the appetite of the military, uh, you wrote in a piece for The Nation last month uh, where you quote uh, a former Air Force pilot, Colonel John Boyd, uh, who says, people say the Pentagon does not have a strategy. They're wrong. The Pentagon does have a strategy. It is don't interrupt the money flow, add to it. And we see that with Congress again this year. Uh, they're only too happy to fuel the military's appetite, throwing even more money at them than they request. Uh, now they're set to spend $778 billion under the new NDAA. Uh, how does the spigot get shut off when, as you've mentioned, members of Congress are just as enthusiastic about boosting military spending as the services are? So how, how do we... How does the spending get shut off or, or cut back? Um, God, I wish I knew. Um, you know, it, it requires 
um, I mean, we've seen little flickers of animation from the Progressive Caucus. Um, I'm not sure they went about it quite the right way. Um, and, you know, with, with support from the right. I think, well, okay, here, here's, a, here's a, I think, I think the important way to make progress is to get it into the members of Congress heads and particularly on the, on the conservative side um, that, you know, as I said earlier, it's not about defense. You know, it's always the progressives say, oh, well, you know, we're spending $778 billion on defense and that's, you know, think how many, we need that for hospitals and schools and you know, other good things. Um, but accepting that accepts the premise that actually we maybe need seven, you know, that 700 plus billion dollars for defense is okay in terms of gets you $700 billion worth of defense. And I think it's very important to get across that it doesn't. It not only doesn't, it doesn't get you less defense, it gets you the more money, gets you less defense. But people, you know, people do care about defense uh, in this country, citizens do. And if you, if it has, if it's implanted in their heads or communicated, which is, I certainly try to do in Powers of War, that, hey, the way this system works, which is dedicated to getting more and more money, is actually getting you a weaker and weaker defense, um, heading to a point where we'll be virtually undefended. Uh, I think that might have a result. I think just saying, oh, it's too much and, you know, we, we need, need to spend it on the luxuries of life like an adequate healthcare system or something, um, doesn't seem to work. I mean, it helps, but it, you need to add to the argument that way. Certainly. And, and we were talking before about how uh, as the, the budget begins to go down, a new threat is found. And, and we're certainly seeing that again now with China, where um, mm. you, have, you have some uh, members of Congress explicitly saying, we should take our peace dividend from Afghanistan and invest it in anti-China uh, measures uh, to, to try to uh, basically just plow it right back in uh, before there's any chance of using it otherwise. Um, and, and this really illustrates uh, what we've known for a, a while, uh, as a Smedley Butler says, war is a racket, right? And uh, the racket yeah. has just gotten bigger and more elaborate, hasn't it? It has. I mean, in terms of the continuity, you know, taking uh, moving from Afghanistan to China, I was interested to note that a couple of months uh, back in, I think, July, uh, we had, there was the commander of the 7th Fleet, Admiral, I think his name for the moment, but anyway, there he was testifying about the, on behalf of the Pacific Defense Initiative, which is a bid by the Navy to grab some of the, uh, even more of the China threat money. Um, and he was talking about how, you know, we needed to put more missiles here, more air defense on Guam, and, you know, more ships, more this, more that, more everything. Um, and I, there he was sitting in his, you know, very resplendent uniform with rows and rows of ribbons on his chest, like they all do these days. And so out of idleness, curiosity, I looked up to see what, <coughs> what these ribbons stood for. And one of them was the Afghanistan Campaign Medal, which he, as an admiral, had somehow managed to get. Um, so I thought this is very fitting. You know, he's got the battle honors from Afghanistan, uh, you know, a trillion dollars plus. <laughs> and now he's proposing to take the lessons of that very remunerative war to, uh, to China. I mean, I don't, don't want to sound frivolous, but I think, you know, it's the same mentality. They, um, I mean, <clears throat> it's a sort of, a topic for another day, how absurd all this China 
threat business is and the way they're dealing with it, certainly. Um, but, you know, that's exactly, I mean, it's interesting that they were as, as brazen as that to say we must take a peace dividend from, from Afghanistan, what peace dividend, and, uh, and take it to China. Um, you know, one of the things that has always frustrated me being a reporter and having written about the military industrial complex is how little ink and how little scrutiny the actual defense contractors get. I mean, of course, we talk about all of their influence. We talk about their uh, enormous lobbying of uh, congressmen. Uh, we talk about how they have managed to sprinkle all of these contracts, these subcontracts for programs like the F-35 throughout many states. So they have that influence. They have that leverage over politicians. But we don't often talk about whether or not the work that they're doing is efficient and whether or not they are overcharging the government and, and whether or not they're actually getting things on time and whether or not there aren't other alternatives to those particular contractors. And I, and I, and I, I guess I'm, I'm asking a rhetorical question, but isn't it that um, you know, we have five major contractors that basically get all of the contracts and most of their own profits come from the, the government, but we're talking about billions, if not trillions of dollars going to five major companies. Doesn't that result in massive inefficiency, if not unproductive programs and uh, systems? I particularly look at the story that I did in 2017 on the, um, you brought up the nuclear uh, industry on Los Alamos and uh, the major uh, weapons facility there, the nuclear facility there, and how it's run by this um, quasi government private um, coalition uh, runs the actual campus there. And they've had numerous safety violations over the years, but because there are only a few major contractors who know how to do the work or who can do the work, supposedly, we keep giving, you know, the same, you know, four or five contractors and their subcontractors the, the, the same work. So when they reorganized their, you know, this quasi governmental, you know, coalition, you know, they were ended up bringing in the same violators. And I feel like we've become hostage to a handful of companies uh, when we should be going outside, there should be more competition that we're there. We really are getting rooked by these companies, but there's nobody actually on Capitol Hill who will say that. And is that just, you know, a that's that's how the system has 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 um, developed in which, you know, um, because of all the campaign contributions and these cozy relationships, no, there, there, there is no criticism to be had. I mean, as I, uh, <clears throat> I I point out in the book, you know, this goes back to well, it goes back a long way, but I mean, it really got a big, really got set in concrete with uh, in the 90s in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, when uh, the Defense Department, most specifically William Perry, who was um, uh, later became Defense Secretary, but he was. <clears throat> very much in charge of weapons acquisition, a very hugely powerful bureaucrat over the years. Um, he actually, he basically organized the creation of this oligopoly. I mean, got all these defense 
companies to merge, paid them to merge. I mean, you're actually we we the taxpayers actually paid to create these um, these monopolies, um, so that you have, as you say, the the, the famous five. Um, actually, it's funny was something people don't quite realize. Even if there's something that's unrelated to anything they do, I'm, I'm thinking of as a story um, I've always been interested in, which was how during the Afghan war, the most suitable helicopter for use in Afghanistan is a Russian one, the MI-17, which the Afghans knew how to use and was simple to operate. And so there was this excellent program until it got destroyed by corruption here and uh, in Russia, I must say, uh, to buy uh, re- buy Russian heli- MI-17s, recondition them. Um, they're bought by the U.S. Army and then given to the Afghan Air Force. Um, but I was interested. I had someone who I knew someone who was involved in this, and he said, "Well, I said so that the army contracts with you, right?" And he was doing the reconditioning, and he said, "No, they recondition. They have the contract with Northrop." Uh, Northrop has the concrete, uh, they have the contract. They don't actually do anything. They simply immediately subcontracted to us after creaming off 15%. And that is apparently happens across the board that the big five, you know, they're just entitled like some feudal lord, you know, collecting taxes right. at the, at the mill, um, to cream off the percentage and then pass it on to someone who actually, you know, would do the work. Um, anyway, so it's, of course, it's, you know, it's completely ridiculous that we have Lockheed, uh, you know, in the position it does. I mean, uh, Raytheon making all the missiles, uh, well, Lockheed and Raytheon basically dividing up the entire missile and entire munitions business, uh, between them. I mean, of course we're going to get ripped off. And by the way, you know, it's not, it is, you know, the problem is the big five, but we've seen other, Wall, you know, Wall Street practices getting in on it. Like, uh, if you're familiar with the company Transdime, which I, I write about in the book, which uh, was this company uh, which came up with a smart idea of buying and mon- monopolizing small but essential systems, like you know, a rotor arm for a helicopter engine or something. And they they bought the company that made that, right? Uh, which they were previously charging just a few dollars, and amped up the price by four thousand dollars, which the uh, Defense Department happily paid, but or maybe unhappily, but so, so it was a monopoly. So you know we have this monopolistic business, uh, basically sucking us dry while crippling our defenses. I mean, uh, how bad can it be? Yeah. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but I I, I sense and I know having 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 read your work before that there is a ton of of detail in the book. The spoils of war, power, profit, and the American war machine that we weren't able to get to on this short program. So I, I encourage everybody who is listening to run out and get this book now and just keep it at your bedside because you know you'll read it now, but then you you will uh, inevitably find in real time examples of um, these unbelievable. Uh, I'll, I don't want to say it. I'll say monopolistic practices in the in the war machine and um, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing on this because it it is uh, it's a heavy lift <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's um, into the heart of darkness well thank you Kelly yes. <laughs> and Daniel I really appreciate this yeah thank you for, thank coming, you for on, coming on spending some time with us 
thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.